The survivors are the first ones to love again, to expand their hearts, to donate their time, their finances, their expertise. Like it's incredible the resilience that these survivors have. You're listening to The Rogue Local, a podcast exploring Southern Oregon's Rogue Valley, its residents, current events, local businesses, and outdoor recreation. Support for The Rogue Local is provided by Soul Smile Dental. I'm Ryan Cavell, and on today's show, I talk to Lauren Trantham about how she turned her personal heartbreak into a mission to help others, riding 10,000 miles on her motorcycle across America last year, raising funds for survivors of domestic sex trafficking. We also discuss the alarming magnitude of the sex trafficking problem in America, how trafficking is portrayed in the media versus what it looks like in real life, and what can be done to help fight demand. So thanks so much for being on The Rogue Local with me. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you. You too. Um, I was wondering if I should share with people how we met and reveal what a stalker I was. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so gosh, it's almost four years ago. Yeah. Um, my husband and I had just moved up here and I was on meetup.com and I was just searching like any interest I have. And I was on like a stand up paddle board group that I saw you like your picture and that you're an admin, but your picture was actually you on a motorcycle. And I was learning to ride a motorcycle at the time. I think I just got my first bike. And, um, so I messaged you and was basically like, do you want to be friends? (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's exactly what you typed me. You said like, Hey, I'm Ryan. Do you want to be friends? And I was like, yes. (laughs) Uh, So funny. And then you invited me to hang out with all of your friends and your friends are so nice. Like I, I just love all of your friends. You have a really great group of women surrounding you. Yeah. I feel like I hit the, the jackpot with my girlfriends here in town. A lot of great people in this yeah. in this area. Yes, for sure. Um, so speaking of, I want to know more about your personal story. Were you raised in this area? Are you a transplant? I'm a transplant. I'm from Alaska. And I, I left Alaska at 17 and I traveled like the world for about a decade. And I came here to the Valley in 2012. So at 17, what were you doing around the world? <laughs> I was jet setting. I don't know. I was a bit of a... I was a bit of a gypsy. I like had all the braids in my hair and I had rings on all my fingers and I just <laughs> wanted to explore. I was just really excited about travel in the world. And so yeah. I don't know how my parents let me do it, but I left at 17 and I went to Guatemala. Wow. After that, I was in Venezuela for a long time and yeah. Spain. And and you were studying martial arts down there too, right? I studied, I grew up doing martial arts and in my travels, I came across Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So I did spend a, a little while in Brazil training jiu-jitsu. That's so cool. I know, it's crazy. I think back on it and I'm just like, wow, <laughs> who does that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, not very many people, but I think that's part of what makes you so interesting is you are really bold and you do things that a lot of people don't. What? Where do you think that comes from? Uh, I feel like... Yeah, I don't really know where I got that from. Um, My parents said I was just always that way. When, for example, in starting martial arts, my brother did martial arts, and I guess I was about five years old, and I was watching from the sidelines, and one day I just jumped up and said, I can do that, and I just joined. So it's just kind of a bit of who I am. I'm sure I get a lot of that from my parents as well. Yeah. Um, But I don't know. I just always want to know what's out there. Yeah. So you mostly grew up in Alaska, right? Um, right. And what was that like? Where in Alaska? And Alaska is incredible. It really is wild. And that's probably where I get some of my wild <laughs> right. antics from as well. But right. yeah, I grew up on a hillside and it was just like every day going outside and doing my homework on the top of a mountain. Or I also think about this because it's so cold in Alaska and we have recess, right, as kids. The cutoff for not sending us out for recess is negative 11. (laughs) So if it's negative 10, you're still going out to recess. So it was like, yeah, they just wanted us outside. And and that's how we grew up. And it's just, it's such a... And you're just used to it, Well, yeah, I feel like I'm not as tough as I used to be with the cold. (laughs) But yeah, it was just part of life. You just, you just lived that way. And it was cold and dark. And we made 
a lot of fun out of that. So yeah, I love Alaska. Do you get up there very often? I don't go very often. I've just been a handful of times since I left at 17, but I still have a ton of friends up there and um, it really is just, I've, I have traveled all over the world and it's still one of my top places in the world for just natural beauty. Yeah. I have to go. Still haven't been. Yes, you have to go. <laughs> um, so how did you get started riding motorcycles? Mm, when I was 14, my dad said, why don't you get a motorcycle license? My dad had a license um, his whole life and he wasn't riding when we were in Alaska. So I didn't really have like a gauge for what it was like to have a bike. And he said to me, why don't you get your, your motorcycle license? Because you can get it a couple of years before your actual driver's license. And oh, at the time I was, I know at the time I was in that phase of life where like whatever my dad thought was cool, I had to go the opposite way. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that story didn't end in me getting my license at 14. I actually didn't even revisit the idea until much later. I think I was 20 or 21 and I was um, spending some time in Florida and kind of the topic came up again. And so I didn't get my license um, until I was 21. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. I I can't believe they will give up. Like if I were making the rules, kids wouldn't be able to get motorcycle licenses until at least two years after they can drive a car. Right. I don't no? know. I don't know if it's still that way in Alaska, <laughs> but I think it's just it's so much backcountry. Yeah. So having your yeah. dirt bike license or your, you right. know, your road license is just normal. But yeah. Yeah, I didn't do it. I don't have me- very many regrets in life, but that's definitely one of them. Funny. I know. <laughs> um, and so when you first started riding, uh, were your parents in Florida then too? So did you ride with your dad? So my parents have been all over the world as well. Um, they went abroad for about 15 years. They did have like a home base and a home business in Florida that I managed for a couple of years. So um, they were in and out. I was in and out. It was kind of just... Um, kind of where we were meeting up at times. And my dad got a couple of bikes in Florida. So when I got my license in Florida, my dad and I really just took off together. So it really became a a great thing for my dad and I to do. We traveled all over the country. I think I got my license and in the first summer we had gone down to the Keys and then we rode up to, we rode from North Florida up to basically the the tip of can like the tip of where Canada and Maine meet mm-hmm. came back down through through the coast and we just we just love to moto camp. Yeah, that sounds like an awesome ride. So um, when you're on the road, are you mostly camping, like tent camping? Moto camping is one of my favorite things to do. I grew up camping. Yeah, it was a lot of either backpacking or car camping, and so just the the nostalgia of sort of being in a tent and being with nature. And then once I learned how to ride and I realized we could combine those two passions, like it was insane. They just took, they took, took off for me. So everything I like to do on a bike is long distance, um, for a long duration with my tent. I'm not, I'm, I'm a very unusual rider. Yeah. I think a yeah. lot. And you, you know, cause know you've invited me because when we've ridden together, <laughs> yeah, when you've told me like your preferences, I'm like, okay, well that's like the opposite. Of I know if people want to go for like a, a ride for the Sunday afternoon and yeah, I'm just like, and like twisties and just, I'm just like, no, I don't want to go for the afternoon because it's like, doesn't make any sense but I'm like but you're gonna go somewhere and then you're gonna turn around and come back and I'm right. like what where's the fun in that I like to go highway I know highways for weeks like, at a time <laughs> I'm, I'd be fine if I never rode on the freeway again <laughs> and you're like I want to go on the freeway and I want to go, go fast, fast. <laughs> right. I know I'm not I'm not a normal biker that's for sure yeah <laughs> um so tell me more about ride my road obviously that's a lot of what we're here to talk about today. Yeah. So tell me how you got started with it. And Yeah, Ride My Road is a personal project that I started about two years ago, two and a half years ago now, um, that involved my bike and my camera and charity work. So the whole story is I had, um, I was I was getting a divorce and I was ha- going through like a really, personally, a really difficult time. I had been married for a long time and really sort of thought that it was going to be forever. And when it turned out that it wasn't, I I was actually quite devastated. And I went to a counselor right off the bat within the first hour. She told me, Lauren, you've been in an abusive marriage. And I just thought to myself, that is not possible. Like, I'm confident. I'm intelligent. I'm independent. I'm courageous. I'm all of these things. And an, an abuse victim did not fit into that map of who I thought I was. And I just didn't believe her. I kind of knew how I felt in the marriage, but I didn't know 
I didn't know what abuse looked like. So she directed me to some resources and I started to research abuse and really like my life became like splayed open. Like I, I really understood how I had been living and it shocked me and it rocked not only my world, but it rocked my identity. Yeah. Suddenly I wasn't this person I thought I was and I didn't live the life I thought I was living. And it was, it was just a very tumultuous time for me internally. And I became obsessed with this notion that nobody is exempt from abuse. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how independent you are. Um, you know, there's people out there that take advantage. And so I did, I became obsessed and I wanted to meet other women who had found themselves in this position of kind of identity crisis and getting swept up in abuse. And so I, I really, I really had to take the time to figure out like, what did that look like for me? And I'm a photographer. I photograph women and it just came to me and I thought I'm going to ride my motorcycle across this country. My bike provides me a lot of solace. So I thought it would be good. It would also be good for me to get out of the area and heal. And I'm going to take my camera with me and I'm going to meet other women like this. And I'm going to photograph them. And I know now, I didn't know at the time, but really I was was seeking out value in these other women in hopes of finding it within myself. Hmm. And so Ride My Road was born. I went on the road for eight weeks. I photographed uh, 37 women on the road. And uh, yeah, it became this whole thing. It became this big machine of, of fundraising and raising awareness for abuse victims and specifically human trafficking victims. Um, yeah, so that's, that's Ride My Road in a yeah. nutshell. It really yeah. came out of a place of pain and it's turned into something really beautiful for me. Yeah. You said you're looking for value and looking for healing of your own. And I'm curious if you found that. That's such an interesting question because when I went out on the road, I I really had a very specific question in my heart, which was, can you heal a broken heart through helping others? And I think I put a lot of emphasis on that. And I really, I think I really thought when I get home from the road, I'm going to be healed. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> it's a lot of pressure. To it was a lot of pressure. And I just, weeks it was, yeah. it was. And it was, I was still really new. I mean, I, I would kind of went through this big life change in November. By March, I had the idea. And by uh, September, I was on the road. So it hadn't even been a full year. Right. And here I was thinking, oh, I'm just going to be healed from this. What happened on the road was kind of the opposite. And I went on the road and I met and photographed all of these these survivors of human trafficking. And it actually kind of compounded my pain. Because now you're sort of shouldering theirs. Now, too, right? yeah, now I have my whole eyes. Like, it was like, you really do get what you ask for. Like, I was fascinated by this notion of abuse. And I you know, I learned about it and I heard these stories and and sometimes I would get on my bike and I would ride 400 miles and I would not stop crying. Yeah. So it was a very intense experience. I cannot Yeah, imagine. so to come home and to think that I would just be healed miraculously, I think was like a little bit of wishful thinking. Right. Um, now that it's been two years, definitely I have experienced some really profound healing. And a lot of that came through the survivors and meeting them and hearing their stories and just being touched by who they are. And um, understanding that, yeah, abuse is one thing, but there's also the ability to heal from abuse. And so, yeah, I, I can say three years out of my kind of my crisis, um, life is a lot better. And I've done a lot of work to kind of heal my heart and heal, heal my core confidence. And and to answer the question, can you heal a broken heart through helping others? Yes, I believe that you can. And that's kind of brings me up to date with my mission. I want to continue forth with that mission that we can heal each other by helping each other. And there's a lot of things right now in this world to be healed. Mm -hmm. And we have to look to our gifts and how we can use them to help others to heal that. So it's really come full circle. It's been an, I mean, it's just been an incredible journey. Yeah. And um, you shared with me earlier that you kind of feel like you've just been the vessel. It's all just sort of been falling in place and, gathering momentum, right? Yeah, Ride My Road as a project and and as an organization has just continued to grow in ways that I could have never imagined. I mean, if you told me I could make a dent in the movement of human trafficking by using my motorcycle and my camera, I don't know that I would have believed you several years ago. And so I do, I feel like these doors keep opening. I'm just getting 
really incredible some support from some incredible people. And Ride My Road is continuing on well beyond the 10,000 miles that I rode. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, whether I want it to or not, I feel like it's this, <laughs> like I called it a machine earlier. Right. It's a machine for good. And I'm happy to be on it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm curious to hear more about like your time with the survivors you were photographing. Um, it it seems, I mean, just one experience like that, like meeting this virtual stranger and asking them to pose for your camera and be vulnerable. And like, how did those go? Was it different every time? Were they open and vulnerable right away? Like what, what were those experiences? Like? Yeah. So first I'll, I'll back up just a little bit because when I originally went on the road, I, I really, when I thought of this project, I wanted to work with women in domestic violence situations or shelters and it became really difficult. There really is, was no sort of national network of survivors that I could have access to. And then I came across the Rebecca Bender Initiative. And Rebecca Bender is a survivor of domestic human trafficking. She's actually local here. She'd be great to be on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> She's yeah. out of Grants Pass. And um, she has started an organization that mentors survivors of human trafficking. And I just want to reiterate that this is this is domestic human trafficking. This is mm-hmm. right. what men and women who've been trafficked in this country and are all Americans. So that was the first thing that I learned was that, wow, trafficking happens here. It's happening here right now. And it's been happening here. And so my, my initial plan to, to photograph domestic violence um, survivors actually morphed into this whole kind of um, experience of meeting human trafficking survivors. And what I learned is that, Trafficking survivors typically, not always, but typically come from abusive homes and they're just abused by their traffickers. So it's this massive cycle of abuse. So it actually really did fit into what I was looking for. So that's how I got I got connected with these survivors. The Rebecca Bender Initiative is phenomenal. They mentor survivors online. So they do a 16-week intensive. It's called the Elevate Academy. And because they're online, they have a national database of survivors, which they were really gracious um, to let me tap into. So Rebecca sent out an email. I had kind of set up my route. Rebecca sent out an email and said, you know, Lauren might be coming through your city. If you'd like to take up her offer of free photography and free portrait sessions, like let her know. And we had to cap it at 40. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so um, really, that was like how we got that was how I got introduced to all of these survivors. They were all part of a broader network. They're all Elevate graduates. Okay. And they all have a foundation of healing through the Rebecca Benzer Initiative. Yeah. And that program, they're like supporting them emotionally and helping them with um, like careers, right? It's incredible. The program, I've never seen anything like it. And it's, it's much more than just a 16 week intensive. It really is a year of follow up and a lifetime of support. They get brought into this network of people healing each other and just the expertise that the Rebecca Bender initiative provides is quite incredible. And they do, they do kind of dream mapping and all kinds of practical help, like how to make a resume and how, how to dress for the workplace, but also like how to heal from complex PTSD, which is no joke. Um, So it's, it's really, really elaborate this course and it just continues to grow. And they've had over, I believe 400, survivors go through their program like they're making a huge impact and um I know that the funds people were donating for ride my road were going to them to actually sponsor survivors through the elevate program exactly and um so how much does that cost roughly per person and so I'm not sure if the costs have changed in the last year or so but when we did ride my road it was twelve hundred dollars and so when a survivor goes through the elevate academy they don't pay a penny Right. They usually get sponsored. They always get sponsored. That's the point. And so when I went on the road, I wanted to to sponsor. I think it was forty five women I wanted. So we had a goal of raising sixty thousand on the road. I think in the end it was pretty close to around fifty seven. That's amazing. Um, A lot of that we got through support from Facebook and the events that we did and friends and family and just getting the word out. A big chunk of that came from supporters who already supported the Rebecca Benzer Initiative. So it was really a partnership of fundraising. But yeah, we almost hit our goal of sixty thousand on the road and. Um, yeah. And it all went to the Elevate Academy so that cool. they could continue to grow those numbers. Yeah. Um, 
actually I asked on Instagram what people wanted me to ask you. Oh yeah. And, um, someone really wanted to know how they could help or how they can get involved. Is that where you would direct them to Rebecca Bender initiative to make donations or can they do that on Ride My Road? Yeah, so actually Ride My Road has evolved and I've actually yesterday got um, notification that my 501c3 was approved. Awesome. Yeah, so after being a fundraising vehicle for survivor-led anti-trafficking organizations, I decided to go ahead and start my own and to continue to do that. So cool. So here in another week or so, I'll be able to take donations straight to Ride My Road, which then will go to fund organizations like the Rebecca Mm Benzer Initiative and some other survivor-led organizations. But absolutely, if people want to contribute to the Elevate Academy specifically or any of the other programs that RBI offers, just go to their website. It's RebeccaBender.org. And you can see all of the things that they're doing. Yeah, very cool. Um, Let's see. Let me look through my questions. I haven't really been looking at them for a minute. Um, I did want to touch a little bit more on the fact that it's domestic trafficking. Because really before you started this campaign, I have to admit that I totally was one of those people who saw Taken and thought that this was an overseas program or problem. And um, really, Ride My Road made me research the problem more, and I was just dumbfounded by the numbers and how often it happens here and, like, all these big um, events that we celebrate in America, like the Super Bowl and stuff, how they are, like, breeding grounds for human trafficking. And I just... I'm really grateful that my eyes were open to what a problem it is here and how it happens to everyday people, women like you and me. And um, I'm curious if you can share a little bit more about the problem, the magnitude, the numbers. Absolutely. Well, I'm in the same boat as you. I mean, I started Ride My Road. I went on the road in September. I didn't know about this issue before June. Right. right. (laughs) So I only had like a few months of jump on there about learning about this issue and that it happens in America. Taken is a perfect example of how human trafficking is misrepresented in this country. Um, Human trafficking is really quite linked to prostitution, what we think of as prostitution in this country. Um, It's really the commercial sex industry, right? Right. But we have these notions about what it means to be a prostituted person, that it's either their choice or they just made bad decisions um, or that they're there on their own free will. But when you look at the statistics of, of prostitution in particular, something like in the high 90th percentile of prostituted people have a pimp. Wow. Right? And so what is a pimp? A pimp controls your money. You do not have free will to come and go as you please. You have quotas. It's enforced with physical violence, a.k.a. pimps are traffickers. Right. So we talk a lot about pimps and pimp culture in this country, but we don't really call them that within the movement. They're called what they are, which are traffickers. So when we look at prostitution as a whole, how can you say that prostitution is different from human trafficking if nine, something like 97% of prostituted people Are have traffickers. Yeah, right. <laughs> so it's really, that that was a distinction that I just did not understand. And so now when I look at pimp culture and when I look at how we talk about things in our society and how marginalized prostituted people are, it's mm-hmm. really horrible. They're actually being, they're being trafficked. They're, they're traffic victims. Yeah. And instead we're, criminalizing they're criminalizing yeah themselves things are changing in that front Mm -hmm. um specifically around juveniles i mean up until very recently the majority of states still criminalized what we call child prostitution which is an oxymoron right you cannot if you cannot consent how can you be a consenting prostitute it just holding kids that are 12 and 13 and 11 years old in jail cells because they've been arrested for prostitution charges is that should be criminal. And most of the states still do that. Wow. So there's a lot of people in this movement that are working on things like this, like really important matters that 
policy changes, policy changes that, that really comes with how we define things and, and what are our definitions. And so part of raising awareness for me is to really um, ask people to question the terminology that we use mm-hmm. and what sort of entertainment that we support as well. Yeah. Um, less than 5% of human trafficking victims are kidnapped. Right. So when we talk about the movie Taken, right, that's what we think of when we think of human trafficking, that totally. people were kidnapped. And mm-hmm. we see all these things on Facebook, like this woman in the Walmart parking lot just saw a trafficker trying to, you know, and it's like, it's just not accurate. Right. Most of trafficking happens through someone you know. Mm-hmm. So whether it's a boyfriend or a husband or a parent, familial trafficking is exists. It's we have to understand as a culture, what does it look like before we can change it? So kind of perpetuating that human trafficking is all about putting people in cages is just not accurate in our country. Right. And that's a a big part of what the Rebecca Bender Initiative does as well. Yeah. Educating that. And I think also um, those stories that you see in the media, at least, and I'm sure that this does happen, but a lot of them seem to focus around like, drugging the women and then they're sort of under their control because of the drugs but a lot of these cases like they're under their control because of like fear for their lives fear or just emotional violence emotional emotional control. manipulation yeah. when you look at abuse especially with um intimate partner abuse it doesn't start out that way Right. right. You don't go into a relationship and you get smacked around the very first day and then you stay. That's just not how that's not how abuse yeah. looks like. So understanding that there's a grooming period, that a grooming period could last anywhere from several months to several years. Um, there's a lot of emotional manipulation. Yeah. And, you know, I have a friend. Her name is Megan Lundstrom. She's a researcher out of uh, Colorado. She has her own organization called Free Our Girls. She's done a lot of research about demand and, and pimp controlled trafficking. And she published a report that categorized the similarities between the occult, so cult leaders and traffickers. And it's the same type of brainwashing. And so her research has actually really taken off because it's giving first responders a better way to deal with trafficking survivors. If a trafficking survivor or a victim shows up and you can understand that they need to be treated in the same manner as someone who just left a cult, right? right? right. You can have more tools to help them, to help them to recover. So. There's a lot of that that we don't we don't really understand. Um, I I mean, we as the general public about right. what it means to be trafficked and and the mind control and the emotional manipulation, the fear, the violence, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um. When you were meeting these women and hearing their stories, were most of them um, children when this happened to them, or what were some similarities in the stories or? Yeah, so the one thing that was really important to me about this project was that the photography was a gift to them based on nothing. So I never asked the survivors to tell me their stories. It wasn't like an interview where I'm going to come and interview you. This was completely 100% a gift to them. And so I didn't ask about their stories. That makes sense. A lot of times we just became close and they would share their stories with me. And so I did learn, I did learn quite a bit from the survivors as um, far as like, how did it happen and how did they come persevere and come out and survive? And so, but really it's a, it's a full gambit. There's many, many subsets of trafficking in America, whether it is gang related trafficking or familial trafficking, which is actually quite common, usually starts with abuse from an uncle or a neighbor and then they kind of get away with it and then they start to invite their friends over and it gets really ugly really quickly but that's actually quite common and it's called familial trafficking um there's the romeo pimp trafficking which i kind of touched on earlier where a guy comes in and he's sort of your knight in shining armor and then things get really bad um there's labor trafficking there's there's all kinds of trafficking that happens in america if you want more information on that, you can check out the Polaris Project. They're, okay. They run the National Human Trafficking Hotline, and they're the biggest data collectors of, oh, of the phone calls that come yeah. in. And they're the ones that put out the reports on how many people are being trafficked and what subsets. Do they give information like based on geography also? Because I geography. feel like it's really easy for us to be like, you know, we're in a pretty bucolic town in America in Oregon like oh well it doesn't happen here but 
I think people would be surprised that yeah. even in Southern Oregon, it happens here. Yeah. The Polaris Project does. It breaks it down for socioeconomic, ethnicity, region. Cool. All kinds of yeah. information. Like the abundance of information that they've been putting out is really helpful. Shared Hope is an organization that specializes in combating juvenile human sex trafficking, and they just released the the report card for America. And you can go in and you can look at your state and see how your state fares in all of the different indicators that they're looking for in their reports. Oregon received a B. So there's definitely some states out there that received Fs. Um, some that have A, B, C, D, and F. And so I really recommend people checking out Shared Hope to see where their state falls in. And there's a ton of resources on what can be done and and what are some actions that can be taken to elevate the rating of your state. Cool. I'll put a link to all of these in the show notes too if anybody just wants to hop on the episode page. Um, So let's go back to actually being on the bike. That's a really long trip, eight. Eight weeks? Eight weeks, yes. And how many miles? 10,118. But who's counting? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, I just, you know, for me, like, big days are like 300 miles, and I can do it for a couple days, and then I'm pretty fatigued. I mean, what was it like actually just being on the road on your bike for that long? It was fatiguing. I think people don't realize that about motorcycle riding, that it actually is like a full body exercise. You know, your core is engaged, your legs are engaged, your head is on a swivel. There's sort of a mental fatigue that happens because you are on constant alert. And of course, I had a lot of emotional stuff happening, which is also very fatiguing. So I would say that fatiguing is like a great word (laughs) for the journey. Um, Of course, not only I had so many positive experiences on the road and so many moments that I was kind of filling my heart back up. But yeah, the, the, the trip was intense. That's the word I typically use. It was very intense. I had the 10,000 miles. I did a big square around the States. Um, I was hitting all kinds of weather. I was camping at night. I was... Yeah. So how would you, when you roll up to the place you're planning on spending the night, like where would you, would you go to campgrounds? Would you... Campgrounds. Find parks? Just campgrounds. campgrounds. Yeah. I have never been brave enough to just kind of pop up my tent anywhere. I always feel like a little bit safer just being around people and checking in people knowing that like, Oh, I'm, I'm here. Yeah. I think that's a good idea. Especially for solo female, for solo female travel. I think it's for me personally, I I always felt a little bit more comforted being where people knew I was. So did you map those all out ahead of time? So I had my general route and I had, plotted where the survivors were so I kind of knew like okay today is Sunday and I'm in Seattle and I know by Friday I have an event in Minneapolis so like I would have general a general calendar and I knew that whatever I didn't do that day I'd have to make up the next day so I was really really tried to stick to like a minimum Um, but yeah I had some weeks there where it was like a 500 mile day followed by a 400 mile day followed by another 500 mile day and That's a lot of hours because I have, I also have, I ride a Ducati monster, which for those of you guys who don't, who aren't bikers, I will just tell you is one of the most impractical (laughs) bikes (laughs) to take cross country. It's a naked sport bike. It's really fast and it's nimble, but it's not, it's not built for long distance. So, um, and you didn't put like a fairing or anything no, on it. No, right? no windshield really. Yeah. No, nothing. And, yeah. but you know what? I've had that bike for 10 years. It's my bike. It's how I ride. I I've crossed crisscrossed the country before on that bike. So yeah. I'm not really like complaining. Like I love that bike. And yeah. if I had to do it again, I'd probably still stick to my monster. <laughs> but, um, the thing about the monster is it's a three gallon tank. <laughs> so I'm pulling over every hundred miles to right. get gas. So it does take time. Right. It really adds a lot of time to, yeah. to the day. So some of those 500, 600 mile days I'd be riding from sunup to sundown. Yeah. That's a lot. It was intense. I yeah. I can only imagine. <laughs> um, and then you had some bike trouble at one point. I, I had a couple of, a couple of moments of trouble. I had gotten a new chain, uh, at Moto Corsa in Portland. And by the time I reached Northern Michigan, it had stretched out wow. and I thought I had planned to get maintenance done for my oil change and everything in Kalamazoo, but I didn't make it to Kalamazoo. I was coming through the upper peninsula and my chain, my chain stretched out so much that I couldn't shift gears. Oh wow! <laughs> so I really became dead in the water. It was yeah. nighttime and 
there was nowhere. I mean, Ducati is also a specialized right, brand. It's right. not, you can't just pop into any bike shop. Yeah. Um, but I was pulled over on the side of the road and this guy drove by on a, in a pickup and he rolled down his window and I said, yeah, I, I'm, I'm pretty much broke down. And he said, well, if you can go back about two miles that way, there's a, a Harley shop, which was quite phenomenal because this was a Monday and it was like six or 7 PM. And normally bike shops are closed on Mondays yeah. and that was a late hour. And I gave them a call and the guy answered wow. and he said, bring it on back. Oh, so I kind of awesome. nursed it back a, a mile back and, and I met these Harley guys and it was one of the most endearing stories from the road because they skipped dinner. Aww. They missed dinner with their wives yeah. and they did everything that they could to help fix the bike wow. on a bike that they didn't have right. the proper tools for. Right. So we called up Moto Corsa in Portland and I'm like, <laughs> Hey guys. And you know, the, the mechanics <clears throat> over there were great. And they were like, yeah, you just need to use your spanner wrench and tighten up the, the back end. And the guy's like, I don't have a spanner wrench because <laughs> Harleys don't have back ends the way Ducatis do. Yeah. And so they were so great. He ended up using a hammer and a chisel. No way. Oh, my God. He oh was wailing on the back end of my bike trying to tighten the chain. And the whole time he was like <laughs> trying to do this Italian accent, this big oh old burly Harley guy. He's probably like in his 60s. And he's going, I bene, bene, the Italian gods. I hope they don't strike me down. And <laughs> it was just really funny. And they were wonderful. They gave me a hoodie. They didn't charge me a dime. Oh, wow. I told them about That's the, so the cool. campaign. And yeah. they've been big supporters. They're good, you know. I'm always keeping up with them on Facebook and they got me back out on the road by 9 p.m. And that's so awesome. It was just a, a, that was the one of the things that I, I like to reiterate about travel is that people think it's a scary world. Mm -hmm. And of course, like we're talking about human trafficking and all of these heavy topics, but the majority of people are good. Right. And the majority of people want to help and they're kind hearted. And yeah. this trip just reiterated that for me a hundredfold. That's good to hear because I feel like hearing all of these women's stories, I would be susceptible to starting to feel the opposite, you know? Yeah. Well, they don't let you even the, the survivors. survivors, the yeah. survivors are the first ones to love again, wow. to expand their hearts, yeah. to donate their time, their finances, their expertise. Like it's incredible the resilience that these survivors have. And they're the ones who I would tell them my story of my broken heart, which, you know, you want to compare hurts, right? Like, yeah. okay, I got divorced. Like, big deal, Lauren. Like, I'm, I'm like telling myself, like, people get divorced all the time. Like, I, why are you so upset about this? And I would have these conversations with the survivors, and they were the first ones to embrace me and to hug me yeah. and to say, we feel your pain, and your pain is valid. And I mean, like, I'm going to cry just talking about it. Yeah. The, the amount of love that they, that they exude and what it means to be a survivor and the hope and the celebration, like they don't have time to sit in, in their pity or, right. you know, to have pity and, and to sit in that, that hurt. They, they have things to do and they helped me recover mm. just by being themselves. So yeah, the world is actually quite a beautiful place and they're the first ones to tell you that. That's so cool. You can make me cry. I know, right? <laughs> um, I just jotted a note that you encountered one of the hurricanes I did. too, right? <laughs> yeah, so I left, let's see, I left Michigan with my new chain, everything going great on my bike, and then I started having issues when I got closer to Florida with my battery just dying. I'd be accelerating through a stoplight and my battery would just die, my, my bike would die, and I hit North Florida, which oh this is another interesting element of this trip. I broke down three times every single time I was either with a friend or I knew people in town. Oh, that's so So great. I broke down in North Florida. I had this issue with my battery. I they couldn't figure it out. And um, the hurricane was a coming. <laughs> it was Hurricane Matthew. And uh, the town was running out of fuel. Walmart was out of water. Everybody was... Um, a mandatory evacuation from St. Augustine wow. Island where I was staying right. and my bike wouldn't start. And I had an event uh, the next day in Memphis. Oh and it was just one of those things where a friend came and he, he towed me and then I had to get another tow truck and I got taken up to Jacksonville, Florida where uh, the BMW Ducati dealer managed to squeeze me in. It was like bare bones staff. People were, people were right, leaving for right, the hurricane. Right. We didn't know how bad it was going to be. And I'm like, driving up to the to the Ducati dealership and Lorraine is just pouring 
and you can barely see on the road and they pull my bike in there and in a couple of hours they diagnosed the problem and they actually had the part in stock which was really rare and they got me back on the road I did a Facebook live with them (laughs) and I literally rode out of the hurricane as as it was hitting yeah and (laughs) I was very wet but I actually that's like my least favorite thing oh my god riding in pouring rain yep and it was probably for a while right Oh, yeah. Like, no, I, well, even beyond that, when I I was riding, it rained from Montana to New York City. Oh, my God. I was in this perpetual, I was moving with the (laughs) storm. It was following you, yeah. (laughs) So I was already, like, quite wet and dried out and wet and dry, yeah. (laughs) Hurricane. So, yeah, it's just part of being on the road is getting stuck in those rainstorms. But, yeah, I, I would, like, had they not fixed my bike, I would have been stuck there because they, all of St. Augustine flooded. Where yeah. I had an, I had an event. And that's where you lived there, right? I lived there, For so I had friends there. Yeah. It was really incredible. But yeah, it was just like oh, nick of time escaping yeah. this hurricane, Matthew. <laughs> oh my gosh, uh, that's crazy. So, what were the events like um, in cities? I mean, I know you had one here, but um, you did those around the country, right? I did. And, um, you just were sharing with people what you were doing. The events varied. We had we had tried to do seven major events. I think we did seven. Um, we ended up canceling the one in New York City, but I did. I had events in uh, Saint o- in sorry in Ashland, Portland, Minneapolis, Saint Augustine, Memphis, Phoenix, and Eureka. Is okay. that seven? <laughs> I lost track. I think so, yeah. <laughs> Each event was completely different. We tried to bring in a survivor, survivor oh, cool. leader to um, maybe share a story and talk about oh, the Rebecca great. Bender initiative and what yeah. it, what, the, what the initiative has done for them. And again, we just I was I was always blown away by the amount of support that we that we received in each city. Yeah, and news coverage also, right? News, yeah, we did media, and I did media in almost every city, so every cool. major city, yeah. which was part of why it was so fatiguing because I'd ride all these miles, I'd jump <laughs> off, on camera, <laughs> and then I'd be like all sweaty and stinky, and like yeah. by the time we hit Phoenix, the campaign had some momentum, and we we made national news. So, cool. so I got to go be on a national news segment there, and yeah, it was just really incredible. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so. What about the future? I mean, I know some projects that are going yes. on, but can you share more about that? Yeah, Ride My Road, as I mentioned earlier, is really taking off in a way that I could have never imagined. And I've recently had a big shift that I wanted to share with you. But I last year I did, I partnered with the Epic Project. The Epic Project is an organization based out of Portland, Oregon, but they have chapters all over this country and they're a men-led organization. So they are men fighting demand. So they are literally hitting the streets. They do a lot of stuff with technology as well, and they're interrupting buys. Cool. So when um, when somebody calls to purchase somebody mm-hmm. else, they are actually intercepting those phone calls. Through, how, how do they do that? They put fake ads. Okay. And then guys That's call so cool. in. Yeah. And they say, hey, don't hang up, but we wanted to talk to you about this because this really is a demand problem. Right. If we didn't have so many men buying commercial sex trafficking wouldn't exist right and i say men because that's what the statistics show uh middle-aged upper middle class white american men are the largest population of sex buyers worldwide interesting so there's something in our culture that is that needs to be addressed when it comes to buying commercial sex when you what I hear from the stories that Tom Perez tells me of the Epic Project is when you get on the phone with a lot of these buyers and you say, hey, did you know that this person doesn't actually want to be there? That this is what trafficking looks like? This is the distinction between sex work and trafficking and prostitution and and really just educating the guys. Like Most men are good men and they just don't understand whether it's because they don't want to or whatever the case may be. So the Epic Project really specializes in reaching these buyers and saying like, hey, this isn't actually cool. I love that they're doing that. And so I partnered with them. Um, Rebecca Bender introduced me to Tom. Tom and I have become really close and partnering on several several events and and I've really become more interested in the demand side. Yeah. So moving forward, Ride My Road is really going to focus on demand. It's just one of the ways you can tackle this problem, whether it be rest so helping survivors who have already come out of the life, whether it be escape, um, you know, there's 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 several different avenues on what 
what you can do to, mm-hmm. to make an impact in this movement. So Ride My Road, I'm really going to be focusing on demand. So Tom and I partnered in an, on an event with Rebecca Bender last May in Southern California called The Fast Ride. So fast is fighting against sex trafficking. We had an article published in Cycle World about that event. We ended up raising 23000 It was really incredible. And um, when the article came out in Cycle World, I got an email from the director of Sturgis, which Sturgis is a big deal. Yes. Sturgis <laughs> is the largest motorcycle rally in the world. This is a two-week event that happens every fall in South Dakota. I think they're getting close to their 100th year anniversary about yeah, hundred years, years that wow, this rally has been going amazing. on, and anywhere from four hundred to six hundred to seven hundred and fifty thousand motorcyclists show up in this city for two weeks to celebrate biking and to party and to have some com- camaraderie. Unfortunately, as you mentioned before, any time that there's a large pooling of men, sex trafficking goes up. Whether it be the Super Bowl or tech events, um, it's just it's just what happens, and so. When because the, they're mostly because they're away from their hometown. They're away, they're from, away their from their hometown. their spouses, yeah. their mm-hmm. families, people who might know exactly. them, right? Yeah. yeah. And one of the distinctions that I'm learning to really clarify is that it's not just these big events. Like this mm-hmm. is a cultural thing right. that, that happens here. And it's not, the events aren't to blame, but uh, it does create a bit of a simplicity for them, I mm-hmm. think. And, um, but one thing that is important to remember when we're talking about events is that this happens every day in every city, regardless of an event or any, it happens. So to focus just on the events is a little bit of a misconception, but when, so when the director of Sturgis contacted me and he said, we want to fight trafficking more at the rally and, and really stand behind this, like that's never happened before. So So this is what I was talking about. I feel like ride my road is this, this thing that just keeps happening yeah. because that's a really big deal. It is. So they've invited us to come and hold a fast ride at Sturgis. So, cool. so we've already la- laid the whole foundation for that. We're partnering with a local organization out of South Dakota. Cool. Something that is important to us when we do these events is to always partner with somebody local. So we'll be doing an event in May in Southern California again. We're going to find an organization there. We have our August event now with Sturgis. We have yeah. a, an organization there. And um, for me personally, one of the founding pillars of Ride My Road is that we work with survivor-led organizations or survivor-informed. Okay. So these the survivors are the ones that are going to fix this. Yeah. And so awesome. leaning on their expertise is, is paramount. Very cool. So... Um the organization with Sturgis, what organization is that? that They're actually called Fighting Against Trafficking, and uh, their website's beautiful. And it's a survivor-led organization, and cool. she's partnered with a state representative. So okay. they're a really powerhouse team awesome. um, that, that head up fighting against trafficking and they're creating a bunch of initiatives and doing a lot to combat uh, trafficking in, in the region. So we're super happy and blessed and excited to partner with them on that. Yeah, that's awesome. Have you been to Sturgis before? I went to Sturgis uh, just a couple of months ago. The director invited us. He said, you should come and check it out this year cool. as we lay the foundation for next year. So yeah, yeah it's a trip. Is it? It's a total yeah, trip. I'd love yeah. to go. Maybe yeah. this year I have Maybe to go. Maybe this year you have to go. I'm looking for for riders to join <laughs> us. That's awesome. Very cool. And um, tell me about the survivor build you're doing too. Yeah. So another element that we want to incorporate into our into our fast rides, our events is donating a raffle, raffling off a donated motorcycle. So for Sturgis specifically, we're looking for probably a bike that's already built for the Temecula event. I'm building it. So, <laughs> so crazy. <laughs> it is crazy because I barely understand basic mechanics and I don't know why I do this, but I take <laughs> on these projects. <laughs> we got a bike donated, a CBR F4. It's a 1994. It's neon green. I've been calling it the Hulk or the Caterpillar. I can't decide. And uh, we got it, that bike donated from a pretty prominent builder out of Chicago named Craig Rodsmith. He heard about the campaign. I met him and he was just really moved. And so he donated this bike and cool. we're in the process of stripping it. I've got it in my shop at home and we're kind of rebuilding it from the ground up and hoping to make it into something beautiful. And it's sort of a metaphor, you know, the caterpillar Mm -hmm. butterfly metaphor of taking something that, um, taking something that's functional and, and really making it beautiful. And, and 
hoping to raffle it off and, and help to support the event. Very cool. So will it be raffled off at the event? At the before? event, okay. which will be May 11th, cool. 2019 in and Temecula. And will it be Temecula again? Yes. Okay, cool. Yes. And I almost went last year, but my best friend lives in Temecula and I was like, oh, I should make this happen. But yeah, you should come. This year. Okay. <laughs> so now that Ride My Road is going to be its own nonprofit, what's your focus? I'm really, really excited about the direction that Ride My Road is taking. I mentioned earlier that I really want to focus on the demand side. And this is a big shift for me because ever since I was young, I really wanted to work with women. I photograph women. I teach martial arts for women. I I just really have a heart for women. And I want to help women understand how beautiful they are and that they're powerful and, and to have courage. And so this new way, this new direction that Ride My Road is taking is actually surprising me because I'm going to be focusing on men. So a founding pillar of Ride My Road is that we celebrate good men. And this is really, really important to me in this movement where I think there's probably a lot of shame happening and a lot of finger pointing and men are causing this problem. And not that that's not true, but that's not the focus of Ride My Road. At Ride My Road, we celebrate men. We celebrate healthy masculinity. We empower men to empower each other. So part of what I'm going to be doing at Ride My Road is really creating a national collective of riders who can fundraise for anti-trafficking and also go through some educational modules. So I'm really going to be targeting men. I want to bring men into this conversation and I want to celebrate the good men because 80% of men will never buy commercial sex. That's what the statistics show. The remaining 20%. I got to say 20% feels like a lot. It does feel like like a lot. That's still surprising to me. I think just my naive little bubble I live in, I'm still like gutted by 20%. Right. Well, that's why this is a billion dollar industry. It's the fastest growing black market industry in the world. Wow. It's already surpassed. Sorry, I don't know if it's drugs or guns. I just forgot that. So I'm not going to say that. Okay. It is the fastest growing black market industry in the world. Um, But in those statistics of those 20%, 80% of that 20, those men that are buying, buy on the principle that they believe all men buy and that it's normal and that it's okay. Mm -hmm. So we need the 80% to reach those men to let them know that, hey, culturally, it's not okay and it's not cool and we don't do it and not everybody does it and it's not so accepted. And so it really is, that is the focus of Ride My Road is to take these good men and to ask them to reach out to each other and to have these conversations. And so we'll be equipping them with some information, some statistics and some education. And so I'm creating this national database, this national collective, I should say, of men who fundraise probably around $1,200 go through some educational modules, you graduate with a back patch or something fancy, (laughs) and you become sort of a protector of women. I love that. An outspoken protector. And and you're the man that stands up and says, hey, I'm not cool with this. Yeah. And we need that. This this movement goes nowhere without good men. Yeah. And so that's personally a big shift for me because I always thought, I always envisioned my life of working with women. And it's like, no, I'm going to be working with dudes on this. The good with the good guys. And still ultimately helping women. And ultimately helping women. Yeah. Exactly. And you know, I love that um, even the name of your organization, Ride My Road, like I know when you're getting started with your personal project, obviously it meant the road you were on and you experiencing the road that these survivors were on. Mm-hmm. But with this shift, it really makes a lot of sense too. like inviting men to ride the road that women are on and exactly. um, see it through their point of view. Yeah. The project name really, we came up with it to inspire empathy. Like, yeah, yeah we, we have to, we have to go at this together and we have to understand what each of us are experiencing so we can make a difference. So ride my road is really like, yeah, jump on here. Right. Let's, let's take a ride. Check it out. See how I've been living. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, I just love it. I'm so proud of you as your friend. Thank you, Ryan. <laughs> so what's the best way for people to get involved with ride my road? Um, Where can they donate? Where can they find out what you're up to? Yeah, everything is coming live at ridemyroad.org. And really my call to action right now, my goal for 2019 is to get 50 pledge riders. So I'm looking very specifically for 20 riders 
to join me at my Temecula event on May 9th, May 11th. So whether you live in the Pacific Northwest or somewhere in California, Arizona, in the region, if you want to join join us, like please do. We're going to put you through a, a fundraising course where you can get all of the foundation for how to raise $1,200. You do those educational modules, and then you join us at the event for a celebration. Also, we're looking for 30 riders at our Sturgis event. So that's 50 for the year, and that's my personal goal, is how can we get 50 riders from around this country to join us in this movement and in the fundraising and, and to come celebrate with us on the ride. And pledge riders can be men or women. I mean, we invite everybody to this table to, to contribute and to, to use their passion for a purpose. Okay, great. So I'm going to shift gears and talk a little bit about the Rogue Valley these are just meant to be like rapid fire questions for you. Okay. Um, so if you have friends visiting Southern Oregon, what do you tell them to go do in a day? I always tell them to hit up Lithia Park first. Lithia Park is why I moved here. Really? Yes. You just fell in I love with the park? I was coming through town and I fell in love with the park. It's funny. We walked through the park too and <laughs> I loved it. It's so beautiful. Yeah. Also Crater Lake. It's my go-to for my friends when they come into town. Yeah. It's so beautiful. So what's your favorite breakfast spot in the valley? I love Punky's Diner. Punky's Diner, that's a new one. I haven't yeah. heard of it it's yet. Family, it's family run. Punky is a spunky little old lady, and she runs around that place pouring coffee. And oh they're my just, gosh. She's that's really awesome. cute, and they're incredibly involved in the community as well. They do a lot of charity cool. work. And we. I was part of the Rogue Valley Veteran where we do a 5K, and they host all of our, our meetings. They host our breakfast meetings. So oh, I cool. love Punky's Diner. Okay, awesome. I'll have to try it out. My uh, favorite dinner spot? I love the Pump House. Me too. <laughs> they have great burgers and their whole tater tot thing they got going yes. on. Oh yeah. my gosh. So great people too. Fun yeah. location. Yeah. Oh my gosh. They did a great job. So what's your favorite place to get drinks? The Brick Room. I love the Brick Room too. <laughs> well, what's your favorite drink at the Brick Room? Oh, I only drink vodka soda with lime. Oh, really? Yeah. It's the only thing I drink. I didn't know that. Yeah. So personally, what's your favorite thing to do on a day off? I watch a lot of movies. Do you? Yeah. I go to the Medford uh, Cineplex or whatever. They have the new fancy seats. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I go to, to the movies at least once a week. Really? Yeah. I miss going to the movies Aww. with a baby. I yeah. Like. I literally haven't been to the movies since she's been born. Oh, my goodness. So I need to get on that. Come so with me. Get a babysitter yeah, and we'll go to the I'm movies. <laughs> what's your favorite movie you've seen recently? Oh, I like all movies. Like, really, really, it's no joke. Yeah. I'm super excited for the new Marvel movies that are coming out. Okay. Yeah. I love the superhero stuff. Yeah. I like it, too. Yeah. I loved Wonder Woman. Oh, yeah. my gosh. So good. Well, Captain Marvel's coming out, and she's she's the... Oh, I don't know She's the her. toughest... She's the most powerful superhero in all of the universes. And they haven't done any movies on nope, her Nope. Her origin story movie comes out in March. Oh, that's exciting. <laughs> I'll be <laughs> Not there. Not that you're counting no. or anything. Um... So any change you'd like to see in the Rogue Valley? Yes. That's a great question because we have so much tourism here. We have a lot of hotels. The number is actually staggering. Like when you think about how many bread, bed and breakfasts we have here and how many hotels, um, there is a program. There's an organization based out of Bend. They're called the Guardian Group. And a hotel can go through the process of becoming Guardian Group certified, which means the, all of the staff is trained to identify human trafficking, what to do about it. And you can put up a little seal in their window that says, we will not stand for trafficking at our hotel. That's really cool. And it lets trafficker knows, trafficker, sorry. And it lets traffickers know, this is not a place that you're allowed to do business. You're not welcome here. That's awesome. And I think that would be so rad if we became one of yeah. those cities where every single yeah. establishment Very was trained cool. in that. What's also cool about that is when a hotel goes through the Guardian Group training, they actually get a rebate on their insurance. So That's it's good so for cool. business as well. That's so cool. And how empowering that their staff can help be on the lookout, actually be on the lookout for this stuff too. Yeah. I mean, education is key. Yeah. We're hearing these stories of flight attendants identifying victims. Oh, yeah. I mean, the more yeah. that we know, the more we can just put our foot down and say, that's not happening here. Yeah. I love it. Um, so last question, what event do you look forward to most in the area? So I, I, I I'm a dancer. <laughs> 
<laughs> not professional or anything, but I really love to dance. And so yeah. I look forward to all of the dance events that happen. The Rogue Valley Dancing with the Stars, which is such a cool organization. And we have to mention that you guys won, you won last year, right? Last year I won the Mirror Ball. So yeah. Cool. So what's cool about that event is they raise a lot of funds. So this year, actually, the event was just a few weeks ago. They raised $133,000 wow. for critically ill children. That's incredible. So that's one of my favorite events, obviously. But also... In the summer, we have the salsa band that comes into town. They're called Salsa Brava, and they play at all the wineries. Oh, and cool. I cannot and you follow wait. them around. I follow them around. <laughs> I'm like a groupie. I like hang out at this winery That's and that awesome. winery, figure out where they're playing, and and it's just like such a beautiful community time. Well, that was everything. Thanks so much for being on, and always fun talking with you. Thanks, Ryan. I love the Rogue Local. I think this is such a rad podcast. Thank you. It's a labor of love, that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. But you don't know where it will take you as we are learning with labors of love. True. Keep it in mind. All right. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. You can find out more about this podcast at www.theroguelocal.com. Stay updated on new episodes by subscribing on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. I love hearing listener feedback and topic suggestions. You can DM the show on Instagram or email me through the website. Support for The Rogue Local is provided by our family-owned dental office, Soul Smile, located in Ashland. You can learn more about our office online by going to www.soulsmile.com. Music featured on this episode is titled Love Is Not by Broke For Free from the FMA via Creative Commons license. I'm Ryan Cavell, and you've been listening to The Rogue Local.